Chinese government is drifting more and more away from uh, liberal democracy. National and, climate um, pledges put the world on track for a global temperature rise of about 2.7 degrees American by the end of the century. corporations are not leaving China. Every generation has something to fight when for. When we look at Europe today, we, we hardly have time to take a breath and, and look into <laughs> the future. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you are listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vevoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's future fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research topics through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. In this podcast, I'll talk to Europe's Futures Fellow and Carnegie Europe Scholar, Olivia Lazar, about the external and foreign and security implications of European Union's green transition agenda. Hi, my name is Olivia Lazard. I'm part of the Europe's Futures Fellows um, at the IWM, and I'm also a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe, as well as director of my own consultancy company called Peace and Design Consulting. I have a background in mediation and peacebuilding in conflict zones, and over the last seven or eight years, I've actually focused on what we call environmental peacemaking, which is, well, not so new discipline, but which is taking a new turn in terms of how to reconcile different objectives in conflict zones when it comes to human security, environmental security, and stabilization. At the IWM, I'll focus my research on a concept that we have coined at Carnegie Europe around ecological diplomacy and ecological foreign policy, particularly focused on European security. At the very crux of it, or at the heart, it's about balancing biophysical, geopolitical, and geoeconomic objectives for Europe so as to survive and thrive in a climate-disrupted world and in a very complex geopolitical constellation. The way in which we approach the overarching issues that Europe has to face in the climate transition and in the digital transition is on the one hand, the first and foremost priority to decarbonize, but also through the decarbonization conundrums to reinvent the political economic foundations of the EU in a globally interconnected world, and at the same time to regenerate ecosystems and uh, natural systems. So the proposition that we put forward is to base the notion of ecological foreign policy on regenerative paradigms in order to balance essentially this need to regenerate social and ecosystems within Europe, but also in other parts of the world and to regenerate ecosystems, which are key and instrumental and really critical to regulate the global climate regime. We've come up with this proposition on the basis of recognizing the fundamental tensions at the heart of the decarbonization transition, which is essentially that in order to decarbonize and to change or substitute energy systems and industrial systems within Europe or elsewhere in the world, we're going to rely on an energy mix, which includes reliance on renewable energy and on digital forms and technological forms of innovation that all rely on rare earths and critical materials, which are 
for the most part, currently heavily extracted and processed in China. But outside of China, they're actually to be found in fragile and conflict-affected zones, which also house some of the critical ecosystems that we need to protect and regenerate in order to help stabilize the global climate regime and to keep on ensuring that we fight water scarcity, food scarcity, and other types of instability that may lead to social, economic, and political tipping points in the global south. So through the decarbonization transition, we risk actually pitting the environment against the climate for the very simple reason that we measure our progress on the transition solely through decarbonization measures, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or trying not to emit it. In this system of measure, we actually forget that there are other biophysical forms of, well, information and data sets that we need to take into account in order to be, to be headed towards a truly systemic transformation. So taking hold of these tensions is key in order to reconcile indeed the fact that we need to usher into a transition which is fully systemic and which helps the EU and the rest of the world stay within the confines of planetary boundaries or biophysical boundaries, whilst at the same time trying to protect the European project in a complex geopolitical environment where the United States and China, but also other actors are essentially competing for these various critical materials and for new forms of industrial growth and economic growth, which will have far-reaching consequences for conflict-affected and fragile zones and for critical ecosystems. So in this, we recognize essentially that the EU needs to focus on a number of different priority areas. Some are about direct interventions and conflict prevention measures in conflict and fragile zones, which hold the keys to the ecological transitions, or at least some of them. And this is about developing some systemic and dexterous approaches towards conflict prevention and conflict resolution that aim to rebuild ecological integrity as a basis for any type of social, political, and economic stability in any society. So that requires indeed adopting new forms of programmatic responses and budget lines, which rely on environmental peacemaking, ecological regeneration, and that requires working with new types of competencies with ecological designers, with hydrologists, with agroecologists. Europe will need to think very quickly in terms of how to recoin so-called next generation partnerships with a range of partners in Africa, Latin America and Asia and the Indo-Pacific so as to support indeed ecological security, decarbonization and new types of regenerative paradigms in economic growth or economic stabilization. In order to do this Europe will need to rethink its geoeconomic model so as to incubate essentially regenerative practices at home in Europe through specific sets of regulatory measures and schemes for private and public partnerships. And we will obviously need to seek out avenues to de-escalate geopolitical tensions with a clear purpose to limit the impacts of the competition for the raw materials needed for the transition. So at the IWM, I will focus specifically my research on the role that critical materials play within the so-called ecological transition and how various European actors approach the exploration and extraction of critical materials 
as a way to secure both the imperative to decarbonize within Europe and play there for its part within the decarbonization transition at a global level, but also do so in a way that doesn't undermine essentially the integrity of the critical ecosystems that we need to regenerate. And that will require looking at foreign policy, dexterity and diplomacy. Welcome, Olivia. Lots to talk about, Olivia. You were also at the COP meeting in Glasgow not so long ago, and things uh, have evolved very quickly in so many directions. And I don't pretend that we'll be able to cover the complexity of the whole issue, but I think we'll be able to show some pointers, ask some questions, but also maybe indicate paths of how we delve into finding a solution so that the planet doesn't go asunder. Mm. And in the famous words of, I think it was President Macron, we don't have a planet B, so we have to work with planet A. How do you assess the European Green New Deal? What are its strengths and what are its limitations compared to the scale of action required? Well, from a European perspective, the Green Deal is indeed, you know, the most advanced policy package that we can think of and really the only one that exists so far around the world, which essentially looks at issues of mobility, agriculture, trade, innovation, technology, regional integration, democracy, and, you know, keeping the political economy of Europe afloat. So there is a lot of work that has been going into this and the von der Leyen Commission, particularly under the helm of Timmermans, has been doing a lot of work very, very fast. You know, it's been under two years that uh, the von der Leyen Commission has been in place and there's already been the climate law that has been passed. There's been the Fit for 55 package. So those two things combined essentially mean that Europe is now legally bound to reach net zero by 2050. And the Fit for 55 package means that we have a series of policy packages that were announced in July 2021 that give a direction of how the Commission will help the European member states to reach at least 55% of greenhouse gas emissions reduction by 2030. I'd like to bring in this concept of strategic autonomy, which we often talk about in terms of foreign and security policy. How does that idea of European strategic autonomy mesh with the issues of a green agenda? It's about supply chains. At the end of the day, um, if we want to be autonomous in the sense that, well, Let's put it in the context, essentially, of the current geopolitical constellation. There is a legitimate and very strong concern that because of supply chain dependencies on China and because of the way in which China has been pursuing its own political and international agenda, which partly undermines the multilateral order and the rule of law and, you know, human rights principles, there is essentially a concern that Europe needs to assert itself better. And in order to assert itself better, it's also, you know, either it goes through the transatlantic relationship, which has been a long-standing pillar of European security for a long time, considering that, you know, the US has not been the most reliable partner nor ally in the last few years, there is a, a larger reflection about what strategic autonomy means in Europe. And that also means 
obviously, economic autonomy and economic innovation. But in order to innovate in a world where there are economic interdependencies which are now being weaponized, there is a larger need essentially to say, well, you know, how do we secure supply chains in a way that support European private sector actors, European public services, and obviously the ambitions around how to reintegrate or pursue another sort of dimension of European integration, which is correspondent to the green agenda and to this notion of, you know, an emerging digital European power. Uh, there is a potential conflict between a climate change policy and environmental policy. It may sound odd, and you have eloquently spoken about this question. Uh, you have I think, like all of us, underline the significance of decarbonization, and that is a must as we try and solve this issue. But there are complex questions to answer because acquiring the green technologies also has its environmental price. Absolutely. We've tended to associate climate change almost exclusively with the release of excess greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And we usually tend to zero that down to carbon dioxide, which we tend to relate directly to industrial emissions. There are studies that demonstrate that climate change actually started long, long, long ago when, you know, human civilization started to settle down into sedentary populations. And where, when we started changing landscapes around agriculture, like bringing down forests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're talking as far back as 10,000 years ago. But obviously the variations in terms of excess release of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere were not as large as when they started with the Industrial Revolution, because obviously, you know, there was a lot more coal exploitation as of the end of the 19th century. But coal also did something in terms of powering a different type of relationship between human populations and their environment. There was an ability to colonize landscapes much more rapidly because of an exponential mobility and to transform essentially marine and terrestrial ecosystems. The reason why I'm saying this is because we need to understand essentially that there is a symbiotic relationship between the atmosphere, the global climate regime, and marine and terrestrial ecosystems. And so obviously there is a large uh, proportion of the problem that is attributable to oil and gas and the fossil fuel industries and the way we use those fossils to power industrial and technological you know, revolutions or activities. But there is also very much this conjoined problem, which is how we live on the earth, how we inhabit the earth, how we change ecosystems and convert land, terrestrial and marine ecosystems for our own benefits at the expense of other species. And at the end of the day, at our own expense, because the more we you know, tear down those ecosystems, the more we destabilize the global climate regime and therefore provoke droughts, floodings, issues around fires, around locust invasions, around health problems, etc., etc. But we also essentially bring down the stability of our own economies because we create water scarcity, we reduce food productivity. And this is something that is going to accelerate if we don't recognize this problem. Now, where does that lead? us in terms of the decarbonization agenda. It's the same problem, or at least it's related essentially to the, the issue of critical raw materials. Decoupling 
our economies from greenhouse gas emission release means that we recouple our economies with environmental destruction through mining. Because having access to these materials mean a lot of mining. And the reality is that mining is not just problematic because we convert land, but also because we pollute waterways. And the fundamental tension that exists at a more global level today is that outside of China, a lot of the places where these critical materials are found are actually located in some of the critical ecosystems that we need to keep standing, that we need to protect, that we need to regenerate in order to fight the climate crisis. So there is a tension which is often, you know, sort of eluded within the global conversation on how to fight climate change, how to implement climate action. This is not to say, and, you know, like, I, I want to say this very, very clearly. I am not saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't decarbonize. No. We need to. This is a matter of human survival. Otherwise, we will have contributed so much to planet deregulation that we may very well see the collapse of civilization within a few decades from now. But we need to recognize that decarbonization is a wicked solution. And that as any wicked problem or solution, we need to look very carefully at how we go about implementing decarbonization and what the interdependencies at ecological economic, political, geopolitical level reveal and how they guide our strategies through asking the right questions. So the balance between geopolitical and ecological is one of, you know, the questions that we need to ask. How do we strike it right? How do we strike it to the benefit of human populations at large rather than European competitivity or American competitivity or Chinese competitivity, for example? seems like a bit of a catch-22, to put it in all too simple terms, that we have to make very difficult choices, that the choices that we make, we're not totally sure that they will lead us fully into the direction that we want. And yet life must go on because there are obviously also social costs to terminating coal production or coal power plants or oil extraction. And so there's a question that we saw in pretty dramatic terms during the time of Margaret Thatcher in the north of England when coal mines were closed. That's a question for Poland, which relies a lot, or my country, Serbia. What will these thousands of workers be doing? And there must be a plan, right? Mm -hmm. Extensive plan in Europe as well as in other countries. Of Are these things being looked at? They are. And this is one of the encouraging things about the European Union's plan around the Green Deal, you know, at least from, let's say, sort of more meta level, right? If uh, you refer back to one of the first speeches that President von der Leyen gave, I call it the man on the European man on the moon moment. <laughs> she was essentially saying, you know, the Green Deal is the vessel for sending, you know, Europe on the moon and making sure that we innovate. That was the subtext that we innovate in green terms. So that was obviously a response to the youth um, movement, you know, Fridays for Future and a very strong democratic mobilization and civic mobilization that we saw. But there was another part which was really important in her message, which was, this Green Deal will leave no one behind. And we need to understand it in two levels here. 
the leaving no one behind is leave no European country behind where different mm -hmm. moments of economic integration, you know, depending on where you situate yourself between, you know, West and East, North and South. And we need to recognize that a transition is about how do you accompany a political economic transformation? And that's the part where we look at, well, what do countries need in terms of financial support, technical guidance in order to transition certain populations, which are the so-called losers of, you know, this green transition, meaning the people working in coal or gas or, you know, oil, um, and how we walk them through the transition. The European approach to it from Brussels is obviously how do you allocate funding for that? So you do have, you know, some fundings, funding sources, which have been specifically allocated to making sure that nobody is left behind. Are they going to be enough in terms of scope, et cetera, et cetera? That we'll have to see. At the very least, it shows that there is a, an understanding that we need to accompany the transition. Now, more from a national perspective, this is where the sort of we need to we need to become a lot more granular. If you look, for example, again at the example that you were giving, you know, the UK and Thatcherism, it was a shock therapy. And there was very little accompaniment of the people who were working in coal mines and in the coal industry at large to walk into the future of the UK at that point. We should not be making the same mistakes. We need to learn from our past. And usually we fail to be good at that. So here is a lesson. But there will be a need essentially to understand exactly what, you know, what are the concerns? What are the fears? What are the anxieties of people who are into coal mining today? How does it relate to grid efficiency? How does it relate to education? How does it relate to social systems, retirement systems? Um, and how do we indeed, you know, th support national governments in the European Union to say, well, it's not just a matter of switching from coal to potentially gas as a transition, you know, energy yes. or to renewable. It's about what are the social and economic packages that you put in place in order to make sure that people trust that they have a future in the green transition. And this is where the biggest test for Europe will be, at least internally. In my country, Serbia, recently there were big protests against a company called Rio Tinto that has been exploring the extraction of, of lithium. Basically, I think the first contract was in 2004. Mm -hmm. And uh, given the levels of pollution in the cities of my country, people became aware and dug deeper and realized what you said a little earlier, that the solution through extraction... Mm -hmm finding critical materials that will be able to power batteries that will power electric cars will have a huge price on the land, on, on villages, on, on livelihoods of people. Mm -hmm. And so there's an ecological awareness that has suddenly become prominent, mm -hmm. not only in, in my country, but, but elsewhere. And it relates to the bigger geopolitical questions and to political questions are we going to try and make Europe safe so that we don't have extraction? And the government in Serbia has actually retracted mm -hmm. after the protests, and it seems that it has gone back on these contracts. We'll see how that pans out. Coming up in part two, Ivan and Olivia discuss how the EU can pioneer a new global model of sustainable development. The bigger question really is, what does the European Union say, for example, to a country outside of Europe, like Somalia, 
that has experience intractable conflict, that has significant development changes and wants to start offshore production. It's a country that's not as rich. There are many similar cases around the world. They need to catch up on their standard of living through social media. People everywhere around the world see where there's a good life and a, and a rich life. And they want to join that world, which means, of course, more more pollution. How, how do we mesh the goal of reaching net zero and the need for countries to develop? This is an area of research which, which still needs to be really invested into. Um, and these countries had a loud voice in Glasgow, obviously. They did. No, they did. And COP26 was, I think, a very much of a turning point. And uh, it's going to lead us right into COP27, where it's going to be very much you know, like what we now see coming as the climate justice COP. What was interesting is that it was China and the G77 group, so climate vulnerable countries, that really sort of let the charge put particularly under the helm of small island states. But that's, I mean, that's another topic. There will be more and more essentially collective voices coming from the so-called global south on they, issues. They are dramatically challenged. I mean, they might it's disappear the, uh, underwater. <laughs> completely, completely. And they bring a new voice, which is indeed about how do we change, how do we hack essentially the global economic and financial system to make sure that we, you know, remain above water. <laughs> all of us, right? Like all, it's, of, us. all yeah. of us. But uh, small island states first. And how do we, and that's, I think, the fundamental question that they're asking, how do we seize the opportunity of the transition to transform power dynamics at a global level? And that affects the way in which international institutions function, international financial institutions function, you know, like how we transform the Washington consensus and therefore the IMF and the World Bank. All of these questions are concerned. They understand already that climate change is the one determinant factor, which is, first of all, not playing out in the future. It's playing out now. It's not a series of events. It's a systemic change across the planet by physical systems and therefore human civilizations. And because it's the given, right, we can't change climate change. Climate change is unraveling. What we can control is how bad it's going to get and how much of, you know, like fundamental impacts it's going to have. But what they're indeed, you know, sort of asking is how do we seize the opportunity of the transition? to transform power dynamics, to transform the international system and to really sort of equalize and make the international system a lot more equitable and collectively resilient. And the notion of resilience is changing as a result of climate change. Now, you were asking about Somalia. We can ask the question around Chile, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Indonesia, Myanmar, all of these different countries which are concerned with new types of exploration for either fossil, unfortunately, or for mineral energy. In fact, until recently, I wasn't aware that the Congo biosphere was, in fact, more important than the Amazon for capturing carbon. Yes, because it's still relatively, and we're talking about in relative terms, unfortunately, it's still relatively standing in a level of better health and integrity than the Amazon. If you turn to Carnegie Europe's website, you'll find a report called Ecological Diplomacy, the EU in climate security, you know, towards ecological diplomacy. And if you turn to chapter two, you will find two different maps. One outlines where the global regeneration priority areas are, and the other one where we find a concentration of uh, critical raw materials. 
materials. Unfortunately, they're the same. But if you look essentially at uh, the belt, the tropical belt um, of the world and, you know, slightly north and south of it, you will find essentially all of the countries and regions that are really, really important to the stability of the planet. And interestingly, a lot of these countries and regions are at risk of either fragility, so destabilization of some kind, and or conflict, essentially of different forms as well. And so this is something that we need to, that we need to, you know, work on. And that again, sort of, you know, beg some questions around how we do regeneration, which is really, really important. How we bring back those ecosystems upon which we all depend, not only because they sequester carbon, but because they distribute water around the world and they just, you know, have so many different benefits. Also just, you know, we never say this enough, but just in terms of beauty, I don't know if you've ever been to the Congo Basin or the Amazon, no. but these are just, wow, I have no words for it. So just in terms of human inspiration, human relationship with the natural world, this is really something that we need to come back to. And this is something a bit more philosophical and sort of emotional in nature, right? But to go back to this strategic question of how, you know, like we, we reconcile or what the European Union says to countries such as DRC or whatever, well... That's the part where we're still lagging behind and where we have trouble sort of finding the new discourses that we need to, that we need to adopt. The European Union is still very much sort of trying to approach all of these questions from the perspective of, oh, it'll help your economic growth. It'll help your, you know, your GDP. It'll help your employment problems. Potentially it'll have some good co-dividends in terms of intergenerational or sort of like youth empowerment, women's empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. But economic growth is not going to cut it at least it's not going to be the exclusive response to what is happening. Because indeed, as you were saying, a lot more people are very are becoming more and more ecologically conscious. And they know that economic growth takes a toll on the environment. Even though you might say, yes, but we have environmental social governance standards. Yes, we do environmental impact assessments, but it's still not enough. We've had over 70 years of relying on those tools. And yet, you know, 70 years down the, low, the, down the line, we still have like so much environmental destruction. So it is going to be, and I expect that this is the next wave of conversation, which is going to be lasting for a long time under the guise or direction of climate justice and the intersections or tensions between development and, you know, resolving or climate action or things like this. We will need to be asking essentially how we rethink economic modeling in different regions and through interdependent relationships, because we are one global community interconnected at various levels. We should not chuck that into the trash because it has amazing benefits. But we need to rethink the way in which we do trade, finance, economic development, stabilization, you know, through different, different economic and political modalities. And that is not a question which is very often asked. How much mining of critical resources is done in Europe? Well, so this is a good question. And I do don't think that this will be completely closed down and left to the other countries? It's a good question. So I don't have the exact numbers, but what I know from European Union's paper is that there's full recognition that we don't have enough resources in European soils to of go. Course. And when Angela Merkel came to say goodbye to our country, she said, well, lithium, lithium is good for... Right. <laughs> for economic growth <laughs> for and for stability. And, and yes, and there climate you go. change. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So the countries that have the highest type of concentration for different, you know, materials mm -hmm. are Portugal, Spain, France, Finland, 
Finland and some parts of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. I'll say this, at, uh, at COP26, I was talking to a number of different people, including from Finland, some people being in the extractive industry, and they told me, well, you know, it's taking such a toll that we don't know if we want to continue on Finnish soil. Mm-hmm. And it says a lot, right? For, because it means indeed that... Where the huge cost, I mean... Exactly. As opposed to the benefit. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting because all of a sudden there is, you know, a, a rationale where potentially they forego some economic opportunities because they wreak too much social, environmental and, and, and political havoc. So there is a question of what governments decide to do. But more and more, and this is the, the really interesting thing in Europe... There is the part where we're very well equipped from a legal perspective that, and from a civic and, and democratic perspective. So that means essentially that if you have citizens that feel very, very, very strongly that a mine should not open in their backyard and they decide to organize themselves into a civic resistance group, they may very well be able to completely close a mine. Mm-hmm. So that means that it leads us back into these tensions and and fundamental questions. From a strategic autonomy or sovereignty perspective, you know, like European leaders think, well, we really need to have access to those materials and do it partly at home. But, you know, citizens don't necessarily see eye to eye, but it's also because... The, once again, the sort of public discourse on climate action is a bit siloed. Not a lot of people understand how much of these materials we need in order to go green, in order to go digital. And so we need to reconcile those tensions. You can't say that you can't bash a country because it's not going fast enough in terms of decarbonization. If at the same time, you prevent essentially the same country to try and explore the economic opportunities, you know, related to this transition. But at the same time, those citizens are incredibly Incredibly correct and legitimate in saying, yes, but this is like, these are our waterways. These are our lands. They are our identity, our culture. They are food, you know, like, and all of this is just once again, the debates are very, still very poor at the moment in terms of how we explain all of those tensions and how we want to mitigate them. Because the more we are, it's not that we're going to find some silver bullets solutions, But it is about making sure that people understand the trade-offs and therefore make democratic decisions accordingly. Because at the moment, everybody believes that, you know, like the transition, I mean, everybody understands that it's hard, but there is a level of impatience, which is, which is a bit, it's legitimate because we need to decarbonize very fast. But in order to decarbonize fast, we need to have the ducks in a row. And Absolutely. I, th- I think it's very important to do what you just did to lay out the field with all its complexity, its bumps, its pitfalls, its highs and lows, so that people are informed about what kind of future they want and what decisions are being made in their name. And of course, governments are responsible Mm -hmm. to show them what the options are. But I want to end on a simple, so-called simple question, which is, of course, the the huge question. And, And you alluded to it already in your previous answers. Do we have to change our model of economic growth. Let's put it this way. We're having a conversation with the planet at the moment. And we're loudly listening to ourselves as humans and not enough to the planet. The planet will have it very easy to at some point slam our mouths shut and say, well, this is how it's going to be now. The reason why I'm giving this metaphor is because we, we need to look at the ways in which humans inhabit the earth differently. 
it obviously means looking at how do our economies function and how do we take the best out of the way in which our economic system functions today as for example you know like globalization has had some wonderful effects in terms of you know mingling of people there you go and this is not something that we should walk back upon even though you know some people including in far right groups would say the contrary but in terms of the longer term vision since you were asking about this governments at the moment have a hard time understanding what the impacts of climate change are going to bring up on us as a whole everybody does for that matter everybody believes in climate change but everybody or the majority undermine or sort of um sort of underestimates the the impacts that climate change will bring So that means that for the moment we're still a bit stuck in our thinking and in our narrative that we can keep on doing business as usual as long as we go green and we can sort of you know look after our own economic interests and we can have a race to the top around development of green and digital technology and we will come out of it victorious <laughs> but obviously if you know we sort of rewind all of our conversation we understand that well you know climate is not just carbon dioxide it's yeah, how do you there right? you go so it's really about trying to reposition and reframe the conversation around resource use and once you start looking at resource use then you start understanding that we need to be indeed a lot more precise rigorous in terms of how we understand for example the role of supply chains and ecological integrity um, do we need as much cocoa for example in Europe you know just simple things like this it is about reframing the conversation in that direction and i think that this is still something where since from a cultural and philosophical perspective liberal democracies have now associated this notion of freedom to wealth and private accumulation and socioeconomic mobility it goes much deeper than just saying okay let's review our economic accounting it's about how do we revisit our own cultures our own philosophies and how do we reinvent um cultural and collective and individual imaginaries and if anything since i i talk often enough about issues that tend to worry people i'm going to give you a bit of a remedy to end our conversation there is a poet that i've recently discovered and that i keep on delving into because it reminds me of you know my own relationship to myself and to the rest of the world and including to nature his name is david white he's american and i would very much urge you to turn to his writings because he will provide a sense of solace and inspiration for how we need to reinvent ourselves in the world i'll leave it at that solace we all need and we need to think about the world and as you very eloquently said this is a dialogue with the planet and we need to hear the planet speaking as well and we do unfortunately when we have climate catastrophes olivia it was a really great pleasure as to usual. talk to you thank you very much thank you ivan That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffee House Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a program of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erster Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.